Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 76 of The Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And here we are. I have to confess from the start that I've been up since 5 a.m. and I've had way too much caffeine. (laughs) So I'll try not to talk too fast. (laughs) Meanwhile, I just rolled out of bed and (laughs) rolled over Emily's house. (laughs) So maybe we'll keep each other uh, even. We'll even it out here. First, we have a huge shout out. A thank you to Leanne, who's a new patron on Patreon. Thank you so much from South Africa. Yes, we really appreciate it. We have some exciting potential new things in the works that require a little cash. (laughs) So we do appreciate it. And um, we want to remind people that we have a Patreon page. And all that information can be found on actually the subscribe and donate tab of our website, bookcougars.com. And we also want to remind people about our upcoming dual read-along. Read-along, right. So we are doing the read-along with Jenny of Reading Envy for Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell, the 1939 smash hit that I have some statistics here. Now, these were from 1996, and I'll talk about them later in another book that I read regarding Margaret Mitchell. It has sold, as of 1996, 30 million copies in 27 languages. And it still sells 250,000 copies a year around the world. So if you think Gone with the Wind is a musty old classic, it's not. It's a great read. It's a surprising read for so many people on the um, Goodreads discussion page that Jenny has set up. Which is really fantastic. She has it. It's five parts. It's in five parts. Yeah. The book. And she has the discussion set up for the parts, which really is helping me commit to keeping up with the weekly, you know, schedule that she set up. And it's really fun to go to those Goodread pages and see what people have to say. Yeah, so there and on Twitter, I know people are talking about it. And and so many people are surprised that it is such a page turner. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I mean, the only thing that's musty about the book are the, the racial, gender, class stereotypes. But it is historical fiction written in the 1930s. So you get a double whammy of historical perspective, I guess, is one way to look at it. Right. So, And we have determined that we are, the three of us, are going to be discussing Gone with the Wind, recording a discussion on June 5th. So if you have any questions, comments, general commentary, please feel free to reach out to Jenny or to the Book Cougars um, and let us know your thoughts. And a really good place to do that, Jenny has actually put a a topic up under the Gone with the Wind discussion on Goodreads to put things that you want us to talk about. Yes, on the when we record. Right. And then after that, we'll be doing the read-along of Safira and the Slave Girl by Willa Cather. But right now, this month is dedicated to reading Gone at the Wind because it is a chunkster. It is, but it's flying by for yeah. me. I can't believe it. And we will be recording our conversation about Safira on June 27th, my daughter's 28th birthday, oh. which is shocking to even think about. <laughs> And we do have a discussion page open for Safira, but I'm pretty sure that nobody's discussing it because everyone's knee-deep and gone with the wind wind, Right. And we'll, as soon as we're through with Gone with the Wind, we'll start getting some discussion going about Safira and the Slave Girl. So, currently reading. I am currently reading Gone with the Wind, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) On audio so far, I 
love it. I love the narrator. She does a fantastic job. I'm really enjoying it. Complete page turner. And as I said, it's really fun to go to the conversations on Goodreads and see what other people are thinking about. Totally. Yeah. And I, then, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, I'm reading it too, obviously. Yeah. And I have my copy that I never returned to my high school library. It's a <laughs> hardcover. <coming> <laughs> it's a hardcover. It's quite large. I graduated in 1984. It's large. And mm. I want to be reading this book every second that I can since it is so big and I do want to get through it. So I did download a digital copy of it. And it is much easier to read than having to deal with the big, bulky hardcover, I have to say. Yes, as we age, those are harder to hold. They are, right? And the, and the and print the print can also be really small. <laughs> the print can be yeah. smaller, but I do feel like, you know, I'm, I don't want to deal with this bullshit of struggling with the big hardcover yeah. sometimes. Other times it's fun. It's nostalgic. Yeah. It has guess, that old you know, book smell. Because you want to think, like, too, like, how many millions of people have read this book yeah. in hardcover form? I don't know. There's a tradition about reading a classic when it comes to that. Yeah. I don't know. I do love my e-reader, and I yeah. love the audio. And I'm finding, I mean, I'm behind, of course, on everything, including keeping up with friends and listening to podcasts because right. it's 50 hours, yeah, you know. know. So yeah. I'm, I'm tuning into it every time I can, you know. I'm, I just started Chapter 15 this morning. Okay. I'm, so I'm I think this week, according to Jenny's schedule, we're supposed to be up to Chapter 15. You're going to make it. Whew. Pacing myself. I'm also reading another complete page turner oh. that our buddy Russell from Ink and Paper Booktube channel. I think that's the right way to say it. If you aren't watching his videos, they're incredible. He, TBR will absolutely So many explode. great recommendations. Yeah. yeah, and he recommended this book to me because I always am outing myself about how much I love a courtroom drama or anything written by lawyers. Mm-hmm. And this is both of those things. It's called Miracle Creek. By Angie Kim. Oh, yeah. I've been seeing a lot of that. Yeah. Everyone's talking about it. It was on the cover of Book Page. Is Mm -hmm. that what they have at the library? Yeah. Yeah. It is a page turner. It takes place over four days in a trial. And she was a trial attorney. I don't think she is anymore. I think she's just a a writer now. I don't mean just. Just, yeah. She has translated her skills to writing. She has many stories, you know, out there. If you look at her website which is angiekimbooks.com. She has a lot of articles in, you know, minor papers like the New York Times and, and such. But this is You got to start somewhere. Right, that's right. Know? That's right. <laughs> but this is her debut novel. I'm not going to talk about it yet. I'm going to talk about it when I finish it. And this is how much I love you and love the book cougars. I have about 10% to go. And I, st- I didn't cancel today. I'm still <laughs> here recording with you. But um, I will talk about it when we record next because I, I want to make sure that I give it its full due and with no spoilers, which right. I need to think about. So what did you just read? Well, I did finish Where the Crawdad Sing. I loved it. Oh, Delia Owen's book that we've talked about. Emily read it, and then we saw her. We were fortunate enough to see her. I love the book. It is just a good, it's like a breath of fresh air to read the novel, really. So many connections between nature Mm -hmm. and human activity and human ways of being are embedded in this book. And one of them that I like so much is there's a, I, I don't know, maybe I should just read this to you. So this is the part where uh, Kaya, who's the young woman who's abandoned by her family, she's living alone in the swamp. She's been doing some some studying, 
about nature. And so I'm going to just read this. However, some stunted males, not strong, adorned, or smart enough to hold good territories, possess bags of tricks to fool the females. They parade their small forms around in pumped-up postures or shout frequently, even if in shrill voices. By relying on pretense and false signals, they manage to grab a copulation here and there. Pint-sized male bullfrogs, the author wrote, hunker down in the grasses and hide near an alpha male who is croaking with great gusto to call in mates. When several females are attracted to his strong vocals at the same time, and the alpha is busy copulating with one, the weaker male leaps in and mates one of the others. The imposter males are referred to as sneaky fuckers. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good example of, um, you know, Kaya is left to her own devices to fend for herself, and she learns about how how things, animals and people, communicate based on observation yeah because she doesn't have people to be doing it with right yeah because she does remember at one point that her ma warned her older sisters about young men who overread their rusted out pickups or drove jalopies around with radios blaring unworthy boys make a lot of noise ma had said and then there's another scene later on in the book where there's a a man gesticulating with his arms trying to make a big noise Mm -hmm. so i just kind of love that that weaving of because i think you know i don't i don't have a problem we're mammals humans are mammals and you know it's it's time we stop having this dichotomy that there's nature and then there's us because we are in nature because i think it's this book that said you know humans don't make the rules we're subject to the rules of right. nature. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love the book. I sent a copy to my mom for Mother's Day. I got an autographed copy for her. I think she's going to enjoy it, too. And I haven't heard anybody say anything that they didn't like it. Yeah. 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 So, again, that's this year's probably runaway bestseller yeah. in the, the fiction world, where the crawdads sing Delia Owens. And I finished The Lost Family, which I've talked about several times already. This was written by Jenna Blum, who was at the Newburyport Festival, which I'm going to talk about when we're talking about our Biblio adventures. You know, it is a World War II novel, which I've mentioned several times. I shy away from at this point, unless there's something a little bit different about them, just because I've read so many. What is different about this one is it has a lot to do with food in a restaurant. It takes place in the United States, Mm -hmm. um, the East Coast, New York City. And it does, you know, go back in time. We learn about this restaurateur going back in time. His name is um, Peter. He had a terrible experience during the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say what it was because it weaves through the whole story. So I don't want to, you know, give away any spoilers But at the beginning, the book revolves around this restaurant, Masha's, that he opens up. Because when he came to the United States, he got his start, you know, impoverished and started working in restaurants. But then he has a wealthy aunt and uncle who help him to start his own restaurant, which is Masha's. And he eventually meets somebody in the States. And so it is about a relationship and about family and that sort of thing. But there is this overarching, incredible sadness that he, the main character, Peter, carries through him throughout the novel. So it's a very sad book. There is food in it. 
there's never enough food for me, but there was some interesting food. Um, and I will talk more about Jenna Blum and why she wrote the book when we're talking about the Newburyport Festival. Okay, great. So again, The Lost Family by Jenna Blum. And she also has another uh, book, Those Who Save Us, which was very well regarded. I haven't read it, but I know people loved it. All right, well, my next read also has the word lost in the title. Oh, that's yeah. funny. I read Lost Laysen. This is by Margaret Mitchell. People are surprised because nobody, you know, everybody thought she was a one book person. So this book really surprised people. I should say A Lost Laysen is technically the short story. I've heard some people call it a novella. This book that I read, though, is about the discovery of notebooks that contain the short story Lost Laysen that was written by Margaret Mitchell when she was 16. The oh, short story. Okay. So she started writing it in 1916. She wrote it by hand. It's written out by hand in this notebook. And she gave it to Henry Love Angel, who was one of her suitors, one oh. of her beaux. She had five guys that were all courting her. She was quite the bit of a hellion girl. She was very much, um, you know, out there living large, being a bit of a troublemaker in that delightful way that kids can be. And it didn't take much to be a troublemaker back then either. No. no. Right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Henry Love Angel courted her. She ended up marrying someone else though. But he kept the notebook. It was in a composition book that she gave to him along with a bunch of photographs. So the book that I'm holding in my hand, Lost Lyson, is full of pictures of the two of them. I should say it's edited by Deborah Freer. It came out in 1996. So the story behind this is when Henry Love Angel died, his son, Henry Jr., inherited the notebook and a lot of these photos and letters from Margaret to his father. And he knew that there was a connection between, you know, that the family knew Margaret Mitchell, but he had no idea that his father had been a love interest. And he wanted these documents He wanted to sell them. He wanted to apparently make money. Mm -hmm. Um, But he didn't want them to go into the hands of a private collector. He wanted them to be made public. Mm. So he did did sell them. um, And this book is the results. And so there is a preface. There's an introduction. There's the story of Henry and Margaret's love. And the thing is interesting is that they were both born in 1900. So... In 1916, when she was 16, World War is happening, which made me really think about her writing Gone with the Wind. It's a post-World War I novel. You know, a lot of that feeling that is so evident in Gone with the Wind about the devastation of war mm-hmm. surely came down to her from ancestors and friends who experienced the Civil War, but then she had that knowledge of World War I, what wreckage that caused. So right. it's, it's interesting to look at Gone with the Wind as a post-World War One novel hmm. um, as well, which I guess I never thought about that. Um, but this this short little book, short little story, Lost Laysen, is full of racism. Hmm. But it's not African Americans who are the target, it's Asian people. It is set in the South Pacific, this short story. And there are definitely shades of Gone with the Wind, you know, precursors. It's about two guys who are basically sailors, and they're in the South Pacific, and they're kind of fighting over one woman hmm. who is a missionary there and full of spunk and everything. So um, <laughs> it is a dramatic, melodramatic type of short story. If you're interested in Margaret Mitchell, I would say 
find a copy and read it. If you're not interested in Margaret Mitchell, the story probably wouldn't interest you. Mm-hmm. And again, I stumbled upon it in the library when I was right. looking to see all the different editions of Gone at the Wind, and there is no editions right. of Gone at the Wind on the shelf because they're all checked it's out. It's impossible to get it from yeah. any library. But I this know. was on there. Oh, I guess one thing I did want to mention is that Margaret Mitchell, when she died, had ordered all of her papers to be burned. Oh, wow. And they were. Wow. So who knows how many other stories... Huh. Novels, short stories, whatever, yeah. went up in flames when she passed away because whoever she asked to do that actually followed through. I know there's a lot of literary cases where people say, burn my stuff when I'm dead, and then people don't. Well, also, I mean, I was just going to say, I feel sorry for authors now because it's all, you know, digital. So it's like, you know, you can say get rid of it, but who knows? It's not, you don't just burn it, you know, it can exist in other places. It can, yeah. That's why I've heard, you know, a lot of writers don't, when they're writing, they don't have, they write on a computer that's not hooked up to the internet, put Mm -hmm. it that way. Yeah. So at least they can... But we don't always know when we're going to die. That's the truth, right? Margaret Mitchell got hit by a cab. You know, in the prime of her life, she died unexpectedly. Right. Well, a lot of people die unexpectedly. So an author could have a lot of data on a computer that somebody gets. I mean, I, I remember when I was interviewing Jonathan Evison, he said he has three manuscripts buried in his yard, literally physically buried. But I would imagine that they exist on a computer somewhere unless he deleted them and was very careful about how he did it. Yeah. You know, so I just think, in other words, a lot of authors have things that they know will never and should never see the light of day, you know. Burning papers was a, a way to get rid of it, I suppose. Yeah, and it was tradition, too, to burn things when somebody died. Mm-hmm. I know, like if you had love letters or letters from some a sister even that when they died, people burn them. Mm. It's very fulfilling. I burned a lot of stuff before I moved, and it was an incredibly fulfilling experience. Mm-hmm. So there. <laughs> I've been a journal writer, uh-huh. a daily journal writer, since like 1987. And I have a whole footlocker full of journals. Wow. And I have wondered about, do I burn them? Do I not? Every now and then I'll take one out and I'll read it and there'll be stuff in there about my dad, you know, who's been gone for over 25 years. And I think like, oh, I'm not ready to burn them yet. But, you know, it's often on my mind because you think too, like, so I'm lugging this crap around. Like I'm lugging my past around. Literally. Yeah. So. Well, you have to write your memoir and then you can get rid of (laughs) it. Okay. burn it. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I did read one more. I didn't read anything else. So I did check out Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek, which was a huge bestseller years ago. And the edition I read was a revised edition that came out 10 years after um, that edition. It's still a bit dated at this point, even the revised edition. And I just wanted to see what it was about. I think a lot of the ideas are good. Uh, You know, definitely it's motivational in terms of taking control of your life again and limiting what you spend your time doing. But there are a couple times when he's talking about more detailed business practices. It doesn't seem very ethical. Right. It doesn't Where are the seem, morals? Yeah, like what are your values? Mm-hmm. You know, if your value is only not to work and make a buck, those don't necessarily align with my own values. So I question that. Yeah. But the, the first part of it was pretty interesting and motivating. So that was the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss. And I think one of the reasons it came on my radar, too, is that he has a podcast now. And he had Neil Gaiman on it not long ago. And that was a really great conversation about Neil Gaiman's writing practice, 
down to his fountain pens wow. and notebooks he uses. Uh, Tim Ferriss asked him about when when does he write? Like, what is his actual writing practice? Is he a morning writer, evening? So he kind of talked about different phases of his life and when he writes and what. And one of the things he said was he's realized that sometimes he'll say, well... I do this. And then he'll stop and say, oh, I haven't done that for 10 years. But, you know, people still think of themselves as doing this, whatever this is, even though they no longer do it. Mm -hmm. And just how limiting that is. I thought that was a really fascinating thing to think about in one's own life. Right. And I'll talk more about upcoming reads and upcoming biblio adventures about age and how things change. Okay. So... I'll Hold just leave it thought. at that. Yeah, so, but do check out that interview uh, with Neil Gaiman if you're a writer or interested in the creative process or a fan of um, Neil. Yeah, I'll, I'll find the link to it and put it in the show notes so you don't have to search farther than bookcougars.com. Biblio Adventures! I went on a big adventure to the Newburyport Literary Festival up in Newburyport, Mass. It's a really cool town right on the water um it's in there are these old tannery buildings that have been renovated and have nice shops and restaurants including jabberwocky books which is an incredible bookstore you could spend just the weekend there there's also a small bookstore in town called the book rack that had an incredible selection we spent an hour there and it's this tiny little bookstore attached to a coffee shop but the festival started on friday night with an opening night reception With two authors in conversation, Elaine Weiss, who wrote a book about women's suffrage movement called The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. She was in conversation with Linda Hirschman, and she wrote a great book about Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, a historical book. I learned a lot. I didn't know the suffrage movement was 70 years long. I thought it was like a 10-year movement. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that there were so many anti-suffragette women who really felt like they didn't want the right to vote, which is kind of shocking to me. Well, right. But reading Gone the Wind and some of those attitudes about like, you know, men are just smarter than we are. Right. They're more courageous than we are. It's like, oh. Give it over to them. They know what they're doing and we don't. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a really interesting conversation. Like I said, I learned a lot. I honestly didn't know. I mean, I knew the big players like, you know, Katie Stanton and, you know, people like that. But and and that they met at Seneca Falls, Seneca Falls yeah. and all of that. But I thought it was like, OK, they started that a few years before. And then, mm-hmm. you know, everything went <laughs> smoothly. It did not. And there was violence and there was also a lot of um, separation between, you know, at one point, um, Frederick Douglass was part of the movement. And then he realized that. He had to step out of it in order to get the blacks the vote. You know, so it was just, there's a lot of history. Black men. Black men, yeah. If you're interested in that history, I highly recommend it. She was a very compelling speaker. I felt a little sorry for Linda Hirschman because she was supposed to be moderating the conversation. And she didn't really get to say very much. (laughs) Um, You know, I think a lot of times authors at this point in their book tour, they have their talking points. They often have to be up on a stage by themselves, Mm -hmm. right? They know how to do it. You know, she had a lot to say. And Linda Hirschman, jokingly, at one point, she was like, I think I can just go to dinner, you know. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a really fun kickoff to the weekend. And then the way that this festival works is there's lots going on all the time. 
So you have to make some very tough decisions. And it's spread out around town in these beautiful churches and in the bookstore and, you know, various spots. I brought my gentleman caller, so I thought maybe we would split up, but we ended up sticking together, and it was really hard to decide on the first session. Right, Emily means that they'd split up and see different events, not that the the festival would end their relationship. No, no. well, you never know with these things, but but Jim loves... Nonfiction. Right. So I thought we would start by going to the one with the novel, historical nonfiction, I should say, not novel. Uh, Rachel Slade was the author, and the moderator was Dyke Hendrickson, who's also an author who writes about the Coast Guard and lots of mariner type of stuff. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah, that was cool. Did you go to that? I did. did. And and this one was called Into the Raging Sea, 33 Mariners, One Megastorm, and the Sinking of El Faro. Yeah. And she was so compelling. I could have listened to her all day long. Very cool. Because she was a journalist who wasn't working and was kind of looking for a big story to sink her teeth into to write a book about. And she saw this little tiny snippet in a column in the newspaper that this ship, the El Faro, had sunk. And there wasn't really anything more about it. Hmm. And so she started to just do some research because she lived in the Boston area. And, you know, New England, particularly Newburyport, she said, you know, was like the beginning of all of the water activity in our country, you know, and container ships and all of that have come through, historically come through these ports. And ships were built in Newburyport. And and so she talked a lot about just how ownership of ships have really changed. And now there are these mega businesses that own these container ships. And um, so she talked about that. She talked about the people that were on this ship that were heading directly into the eye of a hurricane. And that the captain just kept saying, we're going to be fine. Let's keep going. Wow, because you know, when the, with those container ships, it's acceptable for a certain percentage to be swept overboard. It's part of the loss that they build into the business is one of the things I've read about. So oh, wow. that could be like it's all about time, right? Just like truckers, you it is. Get it's there. all about time because when they get to the next port, they have all these people lined up to unload and reload, and they are carrying millions of dollars worth yeah. of stuff literally stuff Mm. and she said that's the thing that she realizes all of us go into these stores you know we go into target we go into the grocery store and we don't realize how much of this stuff we're buying comes to us via these container ships i mean she said the alfaro was carrying you know ford trucks you know it's just like millions of dollars yeah and so she really got invested in interviewing the families she herself went out on a container ship and did a trip to learn what it's like to be on one just incredibly compelling story wow. yeah wow. so to check that out i think it would make a great gift to give to someone you know who likes to read mm-hmm. nonfiction. Mm-hmm. you know i mean father's day is coming up it'd be a great gift for father's day oh how gendered oh i did well Emily. i just know because mother's day is sunday and this is going to come out after mother's right. day so i didn't I'm want just, to say that one i'm just baiting you oh i'm sorry we mm-hmm. we haven't had a fight on air yet so, yeah you know <laughs> here we go <laughs> No, I think women would love to read it, too. I would love to read it. And as a matter of fact, we didn't buy it because the paperback was coming out the next Tuesday. And oh, okay. Both of us looked at it and we were like, talk about a chunkster. It was yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was the first one we went to. And then we stayed in the same building and we saw The Art of the Short Story with oh. Russell Banks and Steve Yarborough. Wow, cool. Yeah. And those are two heavy hitters in and of themselves. The place filled up. Russell Banks has never been to the Newburyport Festival, and he's an East Coast 
author. I guess he has family in the area, so he was finally convinced to come. (laughs) And it was actually really cool to have, you know, unlike the first one we went to where it was just totally specifically on this book, this was just talking about the short story. Mm -hmm. And then Russell Banks read the beginning of one of his short stories that is being made into a film. And then he has been asked to do the screenplay, so then he read that same beginning of the short story as the screenplay. Oh, neat. It was so cool to see the difference. And, you know, he was saying that one of the big differences in a short story, you know, you often don't develop the secondary characters. You kind of leave it to the reader's imagination and lots of times to the author's imagination. Mm -hmm. But then when you go to write the screenplay, you have time and it's really necessary to develop these secondary characters. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was really interesting because I got to hear Jill McCorkle once talk about short stories and she described that she actually writes her secondary characters into her short stories and then she slowly just peels them away as she reads it and realizes like, oh, the reader really doesn't need to know this and they don't need to know that. So it was really interesting. It was a very compelling conversation. I really enjoyed it. For those people who've been to Booktopia, Steve Yarbrough was also a Booktopia author at a Vermont Booktopia several years ago. I didn't go to it, but I did read the book and I loved it. And I can't remember the name of it. I'm sorry, but I will put put it in the show notes. And then we went to lunch and then we took a nap. (laughs) So sadly missed the session after lunch. But then I went to a readable feast, which was with three authors, Jenna Bloom, Louise Miller, Miriam Parker, moderated by our buddy Chris Coleander from Vermont from Vermont and she did a fantastic job moderating nice she really started off by talking about the three authors talking about their writing talking about food and writing which is what the the session was about all of these are authors where food is a primary concern in the books. And they were all really, really fun. That's great. Like, what a great panel idea. uh, So cool. It was so fun. Like, Louise Miller was talking about how her publicist for her second book got in touch with her and said, oh, you talk about this food item in this book. We want a recipe to pass out to people. And she was like, oh, my gosh, I don't have a recipe. She works, you know, she's a baker as for a living in her day job. And so she all weekend tested and tested and tested the recipes, you know. Mm-hmm. And Jenna Blum talked a lot about testing recipes for her book, which was The Lost Family, and how she and her, her boyfriend and her dog were, you know, like – totally trained to be staring at the oven waiting for these baguettes to come out and things like that. And she told lots of really cute stories, including the story of a tort that is in the book that she worked really hard to bake. And then she took it out of the oven and it was like this beautiful, beautiful thing. And then it fell off the plate and slipped onto the floor and they all worked to rescue it and put it back on the plate. So um, so those were the three that I actually, or four, I should say, with the opening session as well. And then the closing session was a discussion on book clubs. Oh, neat. And it included two people I knew, Earl, who's a fellow Booktopian, and then Jana, fellow Booktopian, and a member of my book club. Mm-hmm. So it was really fun to hear her talk about. My book club is one that we do virtually, and that was different than all the other book clubs people met in person. Yeah. So she talked about that, and, and it was a fun discussion because people talked about, 
you know, like the most controversial books that have been read by their book clubs and mm-hmm. how they choose books and things like that. That's great. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it was really fun. And didn't you say that Earl's Club. Club meets weekly? They do. And his book club just read the Bible. The whole thing? Yeah, which is a commitment. That is. That yeah. takes a long time. But I could see where if you meet weekly, just like how we've got these weekly kind of deadlines with God with the wind, that mm-hmm. it would help you get through it and understand totally. it. You know. I just got a new Bible myself. I bought the Lutheran Study Bible because mm. I needed a... I was trying to do the King James mm. version, and I know people talk about how beautiful the language is. I didn't really see that. And some of the things I thought were just kind of incomprehensible. Mm. And I didn't feel like reading with a, what do you call it, a biblical explanation text next to me. The Lutheran Study Bible is the New Revised Standard Version, which is pretty readable. Hmm. Much more readable than the King James anyway. I don't think I'm going to be joining a book club anytime soon, but I've always been interested in in read the Bible as literature. Well, I mean, it's referred to in so many films and in so many books that I think it is good to have a grasp of it. And there are so many versions of the Bible. I mean, I was in the book, that bookstore a while ago when someone walked in and wanted to buy a copy of the Bible and she said, I don't have it. It's just too hard to you know she's just a really small store and she yeah, said yeah. you know there's so many versions oh like which one do you choose there so you know? are when yeah. i one of the bookstores i managed for borders was in wheaton illinois which is a huge christian community we had so many different editions of the bible it was it was crazy mm-hmm. i i don't remember how many i mean it was hundreds and hundreds because wow. not only would you have that edition you would have it in different sizes hmm. and different, you know, different editions, like the gift edition, the right. reader's edition. Yeah. And whenever I would ask a bookseller to go alphabetize that section, everybody, for the most part, would be like, okay. And, and they'd be like, see you in five hours. You know? <laughs> so great. it is intense, the amount of translations. Yeah. And I was wondering about the Quran. Well, that's the other thing she said, that, you know, I also would want to have versions of other religious yeah, texts, and how do you decide? Yeah, because you know? I was thinking, I do want to read that as well, but, like, then what translation? So right. I, I need to track down what is a good, you know, a reliable translation that's readable. Mm-hmm. So if any of you listeners out there know, I'd, I'd love to have some suggestions. Yeah, maybe Earl will know. Maybe they're going to read that next. Yeah, I don't interesting. know. Yeah. He didn't talk about that, but yeah. you never know. Okay, so... Bibli Adventures. We're still on Bibli Adventures. Right. We went on a joint jaunt together. We did. To Harlem, which was a lot of fun. We took the train in. It was a very quick turnaround evening. And we started by going to a restaurant called Red Rooster. I have read the memoir of the gentleman chef who started that restaurant. And it's called Yes Chef. And it's by Marcus Samuelson. And I loved the memoir. Mm-hmm. We had a little tricky situation at the restaurant. restaurant yeah, it wasn't the wasn't the best. Yeah, apparently they didn't prepare the chicken and waffle correctly. Right, according to our, what I think, I think that it was supposed to come with a dipping sauce, but instead the dipping sauce was all over the chicken. Yeah, and the, it was, the whole chicken was dipped in in the, <laughs> the sauce, sauce, and it was yeah. incredibly spicy. Yeah. And we both gobbled it down, and then when we were walking... Well, we should say the restaurant itself is beautiful. Yeah, it was really cool. fun. The bathrooms were even cool. The I thought the environment of the restaurant was beautiful. The service was good. We just were a little disappointed by the food. Yeah. And when we were walking to our book event, we both realized we, we didn't 
didn't really like it. And the next day I actually wrote to the restaurant because, you know, I'm in the restaurant business and I think mm-hmm. people should know. Yeah. And they were pretty gracious about refunding making, refunding yeah. and making good and giving us an opportunity to try the restaurant again. Yeah. So we will report back when we get to do that. So the event we were headed into Harlem for was at the Schomburg Center. It was an event with Dr. Carla Hayden and Tracy K. Smith with Kevin Young, who's the director of the Schomburg Center for African American Studies. Which is a New York public library. It is, yeah. He's also the, is it the New Yorker poetry editor? Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Carla Hayden, Dr. Hayden, is the librarian of Congress. She's the head librarian there. And Tracy K. Smith is our current poet laureate. Right. of the United States. So they had a fantastic conversation, the three of them. It was library heavy. They did talk some about poetry, but it was definitely about, I think, libraries and institutions like the Schomburg Center that are trying to preserve history and tell stories. Right. One of the things I enjoyed was learning that Dr. Hayden has such a sense of humor. Yes. Oh my gosh, she was hilarious. When she was first interviewed for the job, as head librarian of Library of Congress, her interview was with Barack Obama. Right. She got the phone call, <laughs> as she says. Yeah. Well, and he said to her, do you want? Do you mind talking about that? And she said, well, my mom's in the audience. She loves hearing this story. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, imagine that, you know, being interviewed for a job by the president of the United right. States. But one of the things he said to her was, I've seen all these amazing things at the Library of Congress, like the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets on the night that he was assassinated. Amazing things like that. And he asked her, what can you do to open up this library to make it more democratic? Right. And so her push has been to get more things on social media, to, to digitize things right. in a way. Because she talked about how librarians and archivists used to be gatekeepers because these are rare objects. They're one-of-a-kind objects. So you had to be a gatekeeper. She said, but now when you can digitize things... It is so much more democratic. You can share, you know, you can photograph something. And granted, you know, people can't necessarily hold things, but they can see it and they can study it. So she talked about how libraries and museums are becoming much more democratic and also working together in some cases to buy objects that maybe one institution can't afford by themselves. But maybe if they partner, they can buy things like that rare photo of Harriet Tubman that right. came to light that somebody found in an attic that was a picture of her in her 30s. When she was actually leading people yes. on the Underground Railroad. Yeah. yeah, and that two libraries got together to purchase it, which yeah. that was such a revelation to me. Like, it never occurred to me that they would need to do that, you know, based on their budgets, but also that libraries cooperate right. that way. Although there were some funny moments about that where the director of the Schomburg <laughs> Center was like feeling a little bitter because, yeah. you know, maybe sometimes they also compete for yes, certain things. Exactly. It was very funny. Yeah, it was. Yeah, they were, they were really a wonderful group to be in conversation together. Yeah. And then Tracy K. Smith, who's the Poet Laureate, also talked about Dr. Hayden was the one that picked up the phone to call Tracy to oh invite God. her to be the yeah. Poet Laureate. Tracy was kind of like, ah, can I get back to you on that? <laughs> I know, that was so funny because Dr. Hayden was like, it was my first assignment was to choose a new poet laureate, you know? So when she called, she was just like, oh my God, like I'm failing at my first task, you know, because she didn't say yes right away. And then Tracy's point was, you know, like, I'm busy. I have two young kids. I just needed to, you know, think about it, which of course totally makes sense. But it was just really funny that, you know, it's like, 
I'll get back to you. Right. And a good reminder that even when you're the, you know, you're the pinnacle, like she's the most spotlighted librarian in our country that, you know, she still gets cold feet too, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. It was very (laughs) cute. And she also was talking about how Tracy has been a very busy, active poet laureate going to different libraries and doing readings in all sorts of really interesting places. Absolutely. And there were obviously several librarians there and there were some very good questions at the end that I really appreciated too about young new librarians both school librarians and you know people in public libraries asking what Dr. Hayden thought they could do to make their libraries more active parts of their community yeah and she did say she said you know the thing is when you're a baby librarian and you get that first job and you're fresh out of library school, you have so many ideas and you think, I guess like any field that you get into yeah. as a young person, you're so charged up with ideas and possibilities and then you get there and there's somebody who's been in the field for 30, 40 years or more and they're kind of like, uh, no. Yeah, or they uh, feel threatened. This is the way we've yeah. always yeah. done it. But she said, you know, don't be dismayed. Keep your enthusiasm and just realize that you need to find ways to work with the structures, you know. Right. Particularly around technology. And she said one of the things they're doing at the Library of Congress is matching older folks with younger folks because younger folks have more ease with the technology. Right, because in this big digitization push, you know, she said, like, the younger people can type super fast, but they can't, in a lot of cases, read cursive handwriting. Right. And so many of those old documents are in cursive. Right. So they're pairing those with older folks who can read cursive, and they're reading it out loud, and then the person's typing. And I just thought, that's it's just so excellent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cursive is no longer being taught in schools. I've, yeah, I've heard that, and I've heard uh, there is a cursive summer camp in oh, Connecticut somewhere that teaches kids cursive <laughs> writing. I thought I, that's summer camp I'd go to. Um, but yeah, I think th- I've heard bits, I've heard little noises here and there that some schools are yeah. trying to bring it back. Well, I knew, knew a teacher who assigned, who felt very strongly that kids should know cursive and talk mm-hmm. cursive and assigned kids a paper in cursive and one of the kids turned it in with a cursive font from their computer. <laughs> and I thought that was, you know, Pretty sassy. I yeah. loved it. He was very mad as the yeah. teacher, but I thought well, it was hilarious. And you know what? This is from the Tim Ferriss, Neil Gaiman interview. They talked about signatures. Like, mm. what? how do you have a signature if you don't know cursive? Oh, I think so that's kind of interesting. make up their own signature. But, but like, not. what do those signatures look like? Yeah, that's true. You know? They use a cursive font on the computer. <laughs> 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 anyway, that was it was a great conversation. We're definitely going to be going back because they have a new exhibit that just opened up in early May. Right. On Harlem as a community, right? Yeah. I, we're going to head back at some point and see that and use our Red Rooster gift cards. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and I just wanted to tell people also that Tracy K. Smith, the Poet Laureate's book is Wade in the Water, her newest book that came out in 2018. Okay. Um, it's a book of poetry, and she read a little bit from it. It's published by Grey Wolf Press, and I got a copy of it at Book Expo last year, you know, before it had been published, I think. So. Nice. Well, and we should also mention, too, that the Schomburg Center has a great bookstore. Yes. That's right there. Like, you can see it from the outside of the building. It's full of books focused on African-American history and experience and literature and books by African-American writers. I picked up a new copy of one of my favorite books from years ago by Audre Lorde. 
Sister Outsider, mm. um, which is, I've read that, you know, like in graduate school, and I don't know what happened to my copy, but it is a collection of her essays and speeches. Wow. I look forward to yeah. reading that. And they also had, you know, little tchotchkes and, you know, magnets and yeah. keychains and mugs and things like that. So great store. Yeah. And I think the director said that they're online now, too, that the bookstore is online. So we'll... Figure that out and put a link in the show notes. Yeah, it was really cool that they were talking about how they brought the bookstore kind of more central and you can actually see it from the street. It almost reminded me of like when you go to the Museum of Modern Art and there's the store, you know, that beautiful store that's really central when you walk in. This was like that. It was a really nice little store for, for the size of it. They had a great yeah. selection. Did you go on another Bibli adventure? Didn't you want to talk about something about age? Remember when you were talking oh, about Oh, right. That? Yeah. Okay. So just real quick, too. Now, this it wasn't exactly a Biblio adventure, but there's a YouTube channel called The Try Guys. So it's four guys who, they try things, T-R-Y, try guys. And they had a recent series talking about aging. And Laura, my wife, is a big fan of them. She watches them all the time. And every now and then she'll say, hey, come watch this one. So we watched their series about aging, which was really fascinating because these are all, they're all in their 30s, I think. They connected with folks at MIT who have created this suit that mimics being 80 years old. And it was designed to help people who design products and public spaces to know what it feels like to be 80 years old. So they can help people who are that age have better functionality in the world and better tools that are useful to them. It's a full body suit. They put weights on their body as well. They have big rubber bands that restrict their movement. They wear shoes that are a little bit unbalanced. They even have gloves, so their fingertips don't have the sensitivity, and they also it mimics arthritis. And then they also have goggles that can mimic different sight conditions, like glaucoma or you macular, know, gen- macular degeneration. Gen- they have hearing plugs that lessen their hearing. All of these things. But it's for designers who are designing products, because the guy, and I didn't write his name down, from MIT, he said... If we can design things that are good for 80-year-olds, the design will be better for everyone in the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the most fascinating things about this thing for me, which is what I wanted to share with our our listeners, is that when you are working with a touchscreen, it's the moisture in your fingers, the oil in your fingers, that allows that touchscreen to work. Mm -hmm. Older people, after the age 50, start to lose that oil in their fingertips, so... If you are an older person and you have a hard time with a touch phone or an iPad, that is why. Hmm. And I was fascinated by that because before Laura and I moved to Connecticut, we bought my mom an iPad and got her hooked up with Wi-Fi so she could easily stay in touch and her desktop was just going (laughs) anyway. And we were showing her how to use it and we'd say, well, just, you know, tap that and she'd tap it and nothing would happen. And we'd be like, well, tap it. And she'd tap it again and nothing would happen. Mm. And granted, she was 75 at that time. And at first we thought, well, that's weird. Like, is it not working? But when we tapped it, it worked. So now we know why. Mm. And I have to say, when things were really dry, it started happening to me too, I noticed, Mm. on my iPhone. 
that sometimes I'd have to touch things a couple times or rub my finger. Huh. So that is one of those things that they're working on to be more sensitive to all types of fingers. But I know my mom uses a stylus hmm. on her iPad, and she's actually turning 80 this year. So I wanted to mention the Try Guys, too, because I was looking over the book expo schedule that's coming up later this month, and the Try Guys are coming out with a book. Cool. And again, I don't think the full schedule is released yet, but we'll have more about that coming up in, in future episodes. Yeah, we're looking forward to going. All right, now upcoming Johns. I am going to Minnesota next week for work, but I am tacking on a couple days of pleasure and I have big plans <laughs> to go to Birch Bark Books and Native Arts, which is owned by the author Louise Erdrich and has been on my dream list for years. And then Milkweed Editions, which is a really cool yeah, small publisher, are. has a bookstore in their building called Open Book that I'm really looking forward to going to. That's so cool. And then we're visiting Jim's sister, and she also tacked on two bookstores that she (laughs) said I should see, which is Majors and Quinn and Wild Rumpus. Hmm. Wild Rumpus is a children's bookstore. I've heard of Wild Rumpus. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. So hopefully I'll get to four bookstores in a few days. All right. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) What about you? Well, what's coming up? I'll be going to see... There's a new production of Pride and Prejudice opening up in New London at the Flock Theater. Uh, The dates are May 11th to the 26th. This is an adaptation by John Jory. I don't think I've ever seen a stage production of Pride and Prejudice, but our friend Casey's going to be in it. She's playing Mrs. Bennett. So I'm looking forward to that. We're going, I think, next weekend. And then, um, well, there are a couple things coming up. There's a book called The White Mountain, Rediscovering Mount Washington's Hidden Culture. This is by Dan uh, Sesney, I think is how you might pronounce his name. The book came out last year, but he's actually on book tour now. He's going to be in Connecticut in two locations tomorrow, actually. So this is going to be after this episode airs. He's going to be at the Patagonia store in New Haven and then also at the Denali store in Old Saybrook. But after that, he has some events up in New Hampshire. So we can put a link in the show notes if you're interested in seeing that. But I thought it it sounded like an interesting book, and I'm really fascinated by Mount Washington. I'd love Mm. to go go up there and do some hiking. Because I read, I think it was in... John, is it John Krakauer? Who wrote Into Thin Air? That's that Krakauer. That was Krakauer? Because yeah. I remember reading that, and I think he talked about Mount Washington and also Mount Rainier as two mountains that people experience to train on before they do the big mountains in the Himalayas. Yes, that is true, because I, at one of Matthew Dick's Speak Up events, One of the storytellers was hilarious because he told a story. He was this super fit guy, and he told the story of being in training and going to a session at the White Mountain, the one in the White Mountains. What is it called? Mount Mount Washington. Washington, yeah. And looking at all the people who were in this group that were going to hike the mountain, and he was like, oh, gosh, I'm not sure any of them can make it. And then he ended up being the person who was, like, carried down the side of the mountain. So, yes, it is a training ground. Yeah. Yeah, It's supposed to be quite amazing. So I'm going to probably go to that tomorrow night and check him out. Then I just also wanted to give a shout-out to the CrimeCon conference. That is a one-day event 
at the Ferguson Library in Stamford. It's hosted by Mystery Writers of New York. That's May 18th. It's a Saturday, a whole day event. And it is a cool conference because it's one of those where it's all in one room. So you don't have to screw and you don't have to make those hard decisions about, oh, God, what panel am I going to go to? But they always have a great variety of authors and then criminal specialists, law enforcement specialists, let's call them that, (laughs) um, who talk about their their field and how that knowledge can actually help mystery writers write better books yeah so again that's may 18th at the ferguson library in stamford connecticut and it's called crime con c-o-n-n crime con i think that's just adorable adorable. yeah and we'll be going to book expo at the end of may which we've already talked about so more to come on that super excited about that so any upcoming reads yeah, you know, I <laughs> I have a couple if I ever get through Gone at the Wind, which I will. I'm enjoying it. Um, I'll be reading the next short story for the Willa Cather Short Story Project, which is Coming Aphrodite. Hmm. That will be the next there. Now, I have three books I'm going to just mention real quick. The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. It's the latest classic club spin book that landed on my list. It's one I've been wanting to read for a long time, and I thought I had a copy, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So I just picked that up at Breakwater Books. My next book club book is The Real Jane Austen, A Life in Small Things by Paula Byrne. And she looks at Jane Austen's life through different objects in Austen's life and world. Hmm. Just a blurb from the back of the book. The woman who emerges is far tougher, more socially and politically aware, and altogether more modern than the conventional picture. Like a superb archaeologist, Byrne uses artifacts from Jane Austen's life to craft a vivid and more complex portrait of the writer than we have ever seen. So I'm looking forward to that, the real Jane Austen. And then I'm excited about this book. I got a copy from NetGalley, but then we also got hard copy review copies from the publicist. Thank you so much. It is A Well-Read Woman, The Life, Loves, and Legacy of Ruth Rappaport. And this is by Kate Stewart, who I found out on Twitter is actually the cousin of Anne Boyd Rue, who was a guest on our show when we were doing Little Women. Our Summer of Little Women. Our Summer of Little Women last year. So this is a story about a woman who became a librarian. She escaped Nazi Germany. I won't go into a lot of detail right now because I'm sure we'll be talking about it coming up. And the publisher on that is... Oops, yeah, let me mention that. Little A. And the dedication for the librarians, including Jack, my grandfather, Sylvia, my aunt, Alice, my mother, and Peter, my friend. So this is definitely going to be one for all you librarians out there. A Well-Read Woman by Kate Stewart. What about you? I have, um, I'm going to do some shout outs about books because maybe this is a, I've turned 50 thing. (laughs) I know I'm not going to read this book, but I want people to know about it. So I'm doing a shout out. (laughs) We just received from Europa, the second in the mirror visitor series. Uh, the book is called the missing of Claire de Lune. And the first book in this was a winter's promise. They have really beautiful covers. I know it's a French author. Her name's Christelle Dabos. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. D-A-B-O-S. Maybe it's Dabos. I don't know. That doesn't sound very Francais to me. But um, I know people loved the first book in the series. It's, I believe, um, sci-fi-esque. 
So I just wanted to let people know that that second book is, I believe it's out. Let me check and make sure. Came out May 7th. Okay, great. And then I have two others that we also received in the mail that I just wanted to give shout outs to because they sound very interesting. One is called Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors by Sonali Dev. She is an Indian writer. She has other really popular books. I believe this is a new book in a series. And it's a take on Pride and Prejudice. That's right. So um, for people who are interested in that, I looked. I just looked up the reviews on Goodreads, and it's getting very good reviews. That's great. And then the other one we received was Around Harvard Square by C.J. Farley. He It's supposed to be a satire taking place around Harvard and someone having getting a writing gig at the Harvard Lampoon. <laughs> and C.J. Farley, the author, went to Harvard and was the editor of the Harvard Lampoon. So it seems like he might have some, you know, inside scoop on that. I did look at the reviews on this on Goodreads. It's getting very mixed reviews. Oh, okay. So if people read it, let us know what they think. It does have a blurb on the front by Marlon James, who's the winner of the Man Booker, and it says, Wry, sly, and ferociously funny around Harvard Square is not just the satire Ivy League college life deserves, but the one it's been waiting for. Nice. So, And then a book I do think I'm going to read because I'm treating myself on my flights next week, even though it's a work trip, there's some pleasure involved. So I'm hoping to, <laughs> lots of times I have to read work stuff on the flight, but I'm hoping to read for pleasure. And I got an advanced reader's copy of Jennifer Weiner's new book, Mrs. Everything. Mm-hmm. And it's getting really good reviews and it comes mm-hmm. out in June. Okay. So hopefully I'll get to that and I can let you guys know what I think. Excellent. All right, everybody. Happy, Happy reading. reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.